Welcome to Radio Rehab. I'm your host, Dana. If you would like to contact us, the email is radiorehab at gotoproductions.com. You can call or text 415-496-9511, even when we're not in studio. On Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, it's at Radio Rehab Dana. You can also go to radio.rehab and read my blog. This week, I am joined by Christine Benvenuto and Dr. David Pepper. Christine is a psychotherapist and co-founder at Oakland DBT and Mindfulness Center. Dr. Pepper is an MD family physician at Contra Costa County Medical Center. This week, we're going to be discussing Reimagine End of Life, a huge community-wide conversation about living, death, and dying. We talked about lots of interesting things, oxytocin and what the hell it is. Trust me, this is interesting. Suicide, how that factors into dying, the difference between suicide and assisted suicide. Death and addiction, how addiction is kind of flirting with death for a long time. How do our loved ones deal with us dying when we do and grieving people who are still alive? This is a conversation I've wanted to have with doctors, a grief counselor, a therapist, anybody for a long time. So I'm really excited about these conversations. As some of you know, I lost my dad 13 years ago. I dealt with that the quote unquote wrong way by drinking and using. Just a month ago, I lost my dear friend Chris G and I've dealt with it sober and I can't wait to discuss all the feelings that are coming up because this is completely new to me. Welcome to Radio Rehab. Here's your host, Dana Keys. So what exactly is the East Bay Center? Who would go to the East Bay Center for living and dying? Like, would I go there? You might. And the kind of the, our ideal person coming would be a couple, a family, an individual who just got diagnosed with some sort of really, they're at their end. And they want support to think about a few things. First of all, they're, they're working with a primary care physician who's given them a bunch of options for treatment. And they're like, oh, my God, I don't know what direction to go. And I want to go somewhere where I can actually think about the options and see whether what is being told to me is actually, do I have the sort of prognosis that fighting this, it's really worth fighting this? Or do I need to be taking that trip to Costa Rica that I've always wanted to take with my family because that's really all the time I have left? wait a minute, I haven't been in touch with my sister, with my cousin, with my family. I, I really want to get my relationships in order so I can have a, a death that feels like I've said goodbye to everyone. I, my will's not in place. I actually, shoot, I haven't sp- made an advanced directive. And right now, who knows, maybe the medical system is going to just come in and put every tube down my throat. I want to make sure that doesn't happen. I want to make sure at the end, the only thing that's being offered to me is care that's paying attention to my comfort. Right. My mom is really, my mom is so, well, she's blunt about things like this. It's funny. We were watching something on, it was a movie, Still Alice, I think it's called. It's when Julianne Moore just slowly starts to drift into dementia. And my mom, it's horrible when she says things like this. Um, I remember my grandfather used to say things like this too. She goes, kill me before that happens. Right. I'm like, mom. And she's like, no, I'm. So you better make sure I do not have to be like that. Or, you know, she'll see an old person in bed and somebody's changing their diaper. She's like, you better make sure. She's like, I will come back and haunt you if you even let me get that far. Right. Well, studies show that <laughs> Americans are afraid of death, but more afraid of disability. 
We're such yeah. an empowered, like independent thing, you know. And of course, the challenge with like a lot of dementias is that we, there is the assisted aid, you know, aid and dying option now for people who have less than six months to live. They're not depressed, you know, and they have a series of conversations. There's a very good team um, in the Bay Area that deals with that. It's a very small percent of people that use it. But of course, the people who are getting demented, you may have more than six months to live with that dementia and you can't sign the paperwork. So it's kind of a catch 22 because you can only sign it for six months, but in six months you're going to be too gork to sign it and you're still going to have a year to live. Yeah. So we, haven't, we haven't figured that piece out. Amsterdam, I have a good colleague who uh, was the state um, resource for people who wanted to, who say were 50 and they knew they were going to get Parkinson's and at the first steps they wanted to make sure that they'd have that option. And they do, and they then have to consult with the primary care doctor and then with Peter. And I think part of the East Bay Center for Living and Dying, our, our goal is to be that objective third voice to tie together both the physician end, my experience, 30 years of working in you know, ERs and hospitals and, and birth, you know, but uh, difficult emotions, and then bring Christine and the psychological side of uh, the DBT Center that she owns and runs, works with people with dialectic therapy with really tough kind of black white decisions and in a way it's like live 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 live. oh no and so how do we soften those how do we bring people to that conversation ideally with community with family with mom with a child uh, and and help them in an objective way kind of make sure the checklist is done and make sure they're okay yes in a blunt way i mean your mom i'm imagining educated straightforward direct probably be perfect and if your dad's still around or you're around or there's a partner great and how do we just make sure that the 10 things that we would suggest you guys have done you do and we're gonna we're really looking at a sort of a short intervention idea you know a few weeks of meeting with people maybe visiting in the home you know yeah what's the home resources look like a lot of it does get into like insurance medical who's there do you have money in the bank uh you know if we had to pay for those $100,000 worth of chemotherapy, we'd have another conversation, right? right? We, but we're like, oh no, Medicare, whatever. Forget the money. What are the costs to you? What are the costs to your family? And just be very upfront about both the prognosis, but also the support to make sure that you can get through that and to, again, help you think about your strengths and your connections. It was really a surprise to me to learn that people who receive palliative care and more helping them die well, actually end up living longer than people who at the are sort of like at a late stage of a diagnosis, getting all of this additional me- medical care, actually die sooner. Well, that, yeah, and that's Siddhartha Mukherjee's latest book, um, Being Mortal, which is also a fabulous book about death and dying, where a physician, they did a randomized trial where they took people who had lung cancer, specific right. situation, and they re- sort of gave them a choice and said, you could go to hospice and palliative care or not. And as Christine said, indeed, the people who went to that, some of them still got chemo, but they got a lot less intervention. They died cheaper deaths, more at home, and they lived longer because they were focused on the living. So I think that's, is that right, Christine? Exactly. And so if you think about, again, going back to addiction and what's going to have somebody vulnerable to a relapse or addictive behaviors, if you have 
more if you don't have opportunities for closure at the end of somebody's life you're sort of living in this denial bubble that you're doing everything to help this person and they're going to live and then suddenly they drop off and they die that's going to cause a whole different you didn't get to say goodbye to this person that you love or you didn't get to say like I'm really pissed off about the past 10 years of our relationship and I would have liked to have an opportunity to work this out with each other but we never got to have that fight because I was holding out for when you were done with all your chemo Oh, yeah, that's something I never thought of. Like, you can't yell at the person when they're in there. Or, you know, you, you can't conversate. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm so angry at you, you know. Yeah. But that's not a conversation. Yeah, exactly. Right? And there's no resolution. And um, that's kind of, yeah, not not the most satisfying. So how better to have that at the front end, cry about it, grieve about it. You know, maybe work with a therapist longer term. Maybe work with your doctor. Maybe just sit in the room and talk about it. You know, with with a kind of a prescription, like we recommend you go talk to your I'm just going to use you. But, you know, talk to your daughter about how that you said that, you know, you, she'd written you off 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And and that painful conversation. And did you really write her off or is she is she back for you? And is she there and, and, and connected? And and I'm sure that's going to be important to your mom at some point to really feel that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We, we've worked. We've had uh, that conversation or when. uh she said that she wanted just wanted me to be fixed, and then we had the whole conversation where she let me know that like she loves having me back in her life and everything. Yeah, hey, those tears streaming down your face or just down mine? I don't know. I, don't, <laughs> I wouldn't know. I am so not used to it. I'm like, it, where? Why is there water in my face? Right, right. Well, I'm just feeling the tears in my own sense of just you know the connection, and I have grown kids, and um, and I have a great relationship with them. And, you know, wanting, and it sounds like you've had a lot of rapprochement and you're talking to your mom and that's the kind of thing, that's the East Bay Center for living and dying, right? Yeah. How do you live? How do you embrace? How do you make sure, like Christine said, you get on that hike or cruise or Machu Picchu or wherever you, Sausalito for your mom's favorite restaurant one last time. Right. Those things. Yeah. No, that's definitely things that, like, I've started to think about as, like, you know, even though it's not like my peers are all dying off, but it's, you know, my friend who he was, you know, close to my age when he passed away. And that was scary. Uh, So it's like it is something I think about, even though he kind of had a choice in that in that matter. Um, I do have a question about. So DBT, I always thought of as um, a way to train your mind. Where does it come in with? With death, like if you've only got like a certain amount of time, I get. I mean, my my thoughts on DBT could be wrong though. I thought it was so dialectical behavioral therapy was initially developed with um, highly suicidal patients, and basically the woman who developed it was like, I've got this treatment. I want to just work with people who are the hardest people to treat because I'm so committed that what I have is the bomb and it's going to work and I'm going to prove it's going to work with this population. And in fact, she was right. And there's a couple, there's skills training, which I think is what you're talking about, which is a bunch of skills based on really rooted in mindfulness or even going further back, Buddhist, um, Buddhist thought, which is about how can we be present in the moment in the way that's most effective. And I think a way that this, I often talk about this when I'm teaching about mindfulness because I can hear the 
addict in the class going, well, I'm present in the moment and I'm just totally enjoying whatever it is that I'm using. Isn't that being present? I'm just enjoying the moment as much as I can right now. But the other dimension is about being present in a way that's effective or it has a long view. So you're enjoying the present moment in a way that's going to take you into the future that you want for yourself. And so then these skills are how do you tolerate stress without making things worse, interpersonal effectiveness skills, and how do you understand the way your emotion work, your emotions work and how do you use them so you can feel good and get more of what you want. And how do you bring that back into dying? So you bring that back into dying. Again, that's like the ultimate vulnerability of sitting with something that's really painful. Grief is really painful. So what does it mean to just be with, like you were saying, all of the sensations that come with loss and not be afraid of your sensations, not feel like you have to amplify them. When you're feeling a little bit of vulnerability, then you start telling yourself the story about this, what this vulnerability means, and it's never going to end, and it's going to leave you, you're going to die because of this emotion. And then the next thing you know, then the emotion gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the sensations get more and more intense. And then you don't know how to deal with those sensations. And then that's where you're more vulnerable to using shooting up, drinking, Versus if you feel like you've got a tool set to deal with the sensations that come with emotions and the thoughts that come with emotions and keep them in a window that you can handle the vulnerability of it, then, you know, then even death, which is the a really intense unknown, doesn't have to be a trauma that you just can't get over. When you can talk about it. I mean, the idea there is also that it's okay to talk about that it, it will bring up those emotions, but because you have that resiliency and that, those tool sets, it's okay to talk about. And that's the whole reimagine death piece. A reimagine the conference is really about how do we, through art, through you know, play, through conversations with physicians, through uh, music, how do we open those cracks, those portals? that allow us to let the light through, but to allow it also shine on other people and bring it all together. So reimagine is kind of like a citywide festival, well, not festival. I, hate, I can't, I wish I could get that word out of my head because I know it's not a festival. Like, um, it's like a community thing where all these different communities are coming together and doing things, aspects of death, I guess, yeah, or a, death a, and dying and hybrid of a festival and a conference with some academics. There's, there's a few physicians, people, the hospice nurses. I mean, there's a number of uh, experienced professionals who've dealt with death who are on the forefront of being okay. And, you know, I, I teach with UCSF, with the medical school, and, you know, certainly my training did some, but in general, medicine does a very poor job of doing that, of, of having those conversations. We're all code blue room 233 and off we run to shock people and stick tubes right. down and that's the success, you know, don't let them die on my watch. This is really to crack that open to say we have very good hospice in the Bay Area. We've got very good leaders who've had incredible Zen hospice, incredible conversations starting and we want to really bring that to the forefront in ways that it's accessible and hopefully the of people come probably are already converts, but maybe there's 10%. Maybe there's people who are listening to this who are going to go online and look up 
let's reimagine and um, maybe sign up for an evening class or come to a music thing and just have a conversation around some of the difficult things. Also, there's pieces around what are ways that other cultures might grieve and what are other... And, you know, we have funerals here and the morgue and people might people might connect with that. You put the body down in the ground that might feel that might not feel the most moving way for people to die. But there are other cultures that celebrate the end of lives, other religions that celebrate the end of life in very different ways. And I think the more exposure we have to an end of life that we can talk about, that we can think about, that we can imagine ourselves into, that we have comfort in the more comfortable death is for all of us. It's not a conversation that we have to avoid or that we're afraid of or that we just hope never happens and then we get really pissed off and angry when it does. And there's, I think, I forget exactly the name of the workshop, but I think it's happening multiple nights where there's a airlines that take Malay's you. Airways. Malay's Airways. Yeah, I saw go, that. Right? Like, okay, uh, wouldn't it be cool if you got on an airplane, they served you martinis, rubbed your feet, and off you went into the sunset and it was an okay time. Right. I do know. It's funny that you you mentioned that because um, all of my family, like my grand, the grandparents, the older ones who have passed away, start talking to angels in the last week. My um, my biological father was killed. My mom was nine months pregnant with me. Oh. And my I think that was just a part of my my grandmother's heart her whole life that she had to live with. And then uh, my grandfather passed away like a year after that. So she kind of, you know, was she was sad, obviously. Um, it was her son. Yeah. And she it's like she had an emotional limp that was permanent after yeah. that, I think. Well, and you did too. You, oh, ad- yeah. Adverse childhood events, ACEs. Oh, totally. Because, I mean, totally. And those are, I mean, you may not have noted it nine months, but your mom felt it. Oh, I, oh my God. I and, held on. I mean, that's why I was in therapy at 11, because right. I was like, she doesn't love me. And everybody's like, where are you getting that from? Right. Probably from when she was 24 years old, sobbing while breastfeeding, because what right. else was she supposed to do? Right. Yeah, like all the stuff I internalized, like right. pre-verbal. But, um, yeah. but my grandmother... My and my, I'm so glad my, I'm so grateful my aunt called me. So I heard this with my own ears. She sat straight up. Uh, my biological father's name was Danny. She sat straight up with her arms out and went, Danny. And then the nurse was going, Are you seeing angels? And she said, Yes. And it's wonderful. Oh, nice. Mm. And it's like, I, that, seeing that always makes me think maybe there is something great. At, sure. You know, like maybe there is some beautiful thing where we get reconnected. Cause my parents raised me, they have a lot of, you know, they were, really into um, Taoism and Buddhism and Eastern thought. So I used to read those books too. And my parents kind of told told me the way they felt was that we as souls all kind of picked each other to live these lives out together before we were born and, and you know, to learn from each other and that, you know, one day we'll be together again, things like that. And um, I forgot why I brought, oh, I brought that up because of the whole... When somebody starts having those like moments of euphoria at the end, yeah. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, sure. And that's, you know, the the parts you want to see, right? Yeah. You, and I'm sure if you were there when your grandma did that, that that's such a, like, she's going to be okay. Yeah. And even beyond, it's like there's a beauty beyond. And whether it's a beauty of acceptance or a beauty, but to, to take that away from people. It's like that moment of birth. To be and I did like a thousand births and it's I miss it because it's such an amazing moment and the you know sometimes it doesn't go perfectly but you know a lot of times it does but that moment of death we've we've kind of stolen it from people by putting people in the ICU and it sounds like your grandmother and of course 
families have very different traditions. Sounds like your family is, and you are much more okay with that, which is great. And how do we make people as a broader sense okay? And even look at that moment of like, then my mom had, she died at home and had a similar moment where she sort of sat up and just looked bright in her eyes and, and that was it. That was the last moments. Yeah. And sure, what, whatever's out there, that's between you and community and whatever, but we'd like to know that people are going to be okay and that it's beautiful. Yeah. I was also listening to something. It was like someone was talking about how in other cultures, the way they treat dead bodies, you know, and they'll just like put flowers all around them and, you know, often gather around and light them on fire. And yeah. that's, you know, India. and just stand and dance and whatever. And how we pump them full of like whatever well, formaldehyde, formaldehyde yeah. is, you know, Chemical. like Ugh. for what? So we can look at them for like an hour at a funeral. It's such a weird thing. Right. And we put makeup on them and lipstick yeah, weird on ass them. makeup. Right. And then, you know, sometimes the mouth won't stay shut. So the lips are glued together and right. you can see it. And it's right. like, yeah, we do some weird shit. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Trying yeah. to preserve this idea that somebody is still alive we're still afraid of death even when the person in front of you is dead right and going back to your friend i think that it's awesome for your friend and for your community that he didn't die in isolation but he oh, really yeah. died in community and that you all got to have that moment of like i love you and the healing for your community that came in that but also the the to see just it was probably really vulnerable to see what he looked like in those moments of death, but that oh, was yeah. also so raw and so real. And that's 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 what death is. Death isn't that made up formaldehyded face in a coffin with like maybe a little smile at the edges and some nice lipstick. Yeah. And don't I still look pretty for you? No, even that's in creepy. the moment of death. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah, that's. I, I was thinking about Marilyn Monroe because my 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 dad read that Albert Goldman book. I wish I'd never looked at it. It was because I was like ten years old. It gave me nightmares. It was her in the autopsy table where her skin was like sagging. But I remember later seeing pictures of the way Joe DiMaggio had her so like the best makeup artist in the world and this thin veil over her so that she almost looked like herself, almost. But like you have to think about how much work that took and why. Right. Like she was dead. We we all know she was beautiful. Like we don't need her to be beautiful in the coffin. But I guess some people do need that. Yeah, there's a uh, woman I've forgotten her name, but she wrote a book called "Don't Send Me Flowers When I'm Dead, Send Them to Me Now When I'm Alive." Because it, tur <laughs> well, it turns out half of the flowers in the United States are sent to dead people. Oh funerals, yeah, it's which for is, the family. I right, guess it's kind right. Of the family a spray a, isn't that like something weird uh, like that? Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it, it, it's that same idea of embrace life now. And that's not saying you can't have flowers at death, too, but don't just send – don't forget to send me flowers along the way. Don't forget to live. Don't forget to embrace life. And, of course, East Bay Center for Living Dying, the, the premise is that if, if you have your ducks in an order and you feel okay about that, then you can go on living. And right. If you don't, then what, what resources can we refer you to? What therapy? What options are there? I mean, there's a lot of work being done around hallucinogenics, around MDMA. Like around ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, right? psilocybin, where people have transformative experiences, both with addiction and around death, where all of a sudden, you know, Christine had a, a friend who parents were struggling with the 20-year-old kid, struggling, struggling, very intelligent patients, parents, and then took him to, like, Brazil, ayahuasca ceremony, done with addiction, had a vision. And a lot of that's being done with current drugs, with 
the uh, ketamine, I think, is the, the ketamine papers. Ketamine is now legal. Kaiser's doing it. And it is really? Around, yes. Oh, Kaiser's, my God. Yeah, in Oakland. And it's kind of like shock therapy. People with resistant or very difficult to treat depression, where you might use ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, mm-hmm. converse, you know, controversial on its own, but, but ketamine is being shown to be transformative in a, in a rapid fire kind of weak, 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 bam, reframe your life, restart your engine. And, and I think a lot of, again, coming to what are our, where do we want to help you, help people? It's to help people think about the range of options that might be out there, the tools that they might not be engaging in, and of course the tools they already have. Right, because the minute you get into you're dying, that's scary. And if you're already your your emotions are going to really start going up, right? If you're if you're afraid of death, who wants to find out that they're dying? So to not end your life in a panicked way and pursue treatment or ways of spending time that are not the way you want to be ending your life is really important. So looking back, looking at ketamine, psilocybin, it's like, wait a minute, there's, there's still options for me now, even though I'm at the end. So we're really wanting to connect people with all these different treatment options, depending on what they need. They, if they want to find a doctor that they can talk about, you know, death with dignity and all the things about assisted suicide, that we have a way to refer them to somebody who can help them with that, that people can really feel like they're ending their life with a sense of peace and on their terms. Right. And if you just wrapped it back to the addiction piece, I think there is a component of somebody who's had a history with drugs. Uh, maybe 20 years later, who's like, oh, no, I don't want those pain medicines or I don't want that uh-huh. benzodiazepine, which it's a very different relationship at that point. And um, certainly Western medicine does have a you know a whole cadre of you know pills and shots and patches and lollipops of things that can keep people comfortable. Um, and again, being afraid of that may or may not serve people in the, in the best way as they face you know, the ultimate journey. Right. Uh, I feel like we're so lucky to live in California where this stuff is, it's easier to talk about. Think about my family in Louisiana and Mississippi, probably not conversations they're having at all. Yeah. No, no. My other, and, and the question I had was, where does suicide factor into all of this? Be more specific, where does suicide fit into it in terms of, so if you look at suicide, there's versus assisted suicide very different tracks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this is the distinction between the two. Suicide, it's it's this sort of hostile moment of isolation, not too different than moving like into addictive behaviors that take you into death. That's a slow suicide. There's the quick suicide that might happen with an overdose of pills or somebody shoots them. There's all of those methods that people kill themselves. But addiction is a slow form of suicide and it's a slow, you don't have a sense of belonging. You don't feel like there's a way that you can have a life that is worth living, that you see a future for yourself that's meaningful, and you start making your your sense of purpose get smaller and smaller and more and more narrow, and you've just exited yourself out. And that's very different than what happens in assisted suicide, which is they, I, I was reading something, there's, 
there's even work with the family that the family understands that this is this is a chosen medical treatment very different than than suicide because they want the framing for the family that this is really a choice that's happening in community with their family with their friends with the doctors with support different than something that happens is a hostile act that happens in isolation and and both have those societal overlays i think assisted suicide might be better framed thinking about like a therapeutic abortion where it's a mm-hmm. choice that not many people are going to make or or it's necessarily a choice you want to face but it is a medical option out there now in California. And as you say, thank God we live here. Um, now, I would love the parties and the, the celebratory parades that Louisiana has, right? <laughs> right. I mean, that, that'd be great. Yeah. So how do we... All you need is a couple hundred dollars and like right, some time. And right. now you can have a brand. Yeah. yeah. But how do, we, how do we bring each culture's wealth of experience and the variety of things to really help people move into the final phases of their life and celebrate their life on the way? And that's what Reimagine does. That's, the, that's the whole purpose of this. By talking about it, we free people up. Yeah. Are we? Do we have it every year? We have. Well, this is the second year. Okay. Um, it's happening in New York as well. If you don't make it here, or you're listening from New York, uh, you can get it there. And and I know Brad Wolf, the executive press producer, is uh, looking to do it. You know, over and over. So yeah, I hope so. Well, thank you guys so much for being on Radio Rehab and and having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure talking with you. Sex and drugs and rock and roll Is all my brain and body need Sex and drugs and rock and roll